The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com disclosures. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of 16 Minutes. I'm Sonal, and this is our show where we talk about what's in the news, what's hype, what's real, and why it matters from our vantage point in tech. This week, we're covering two topics. We quickly cover the recent hearings on the SEC's case against Telegram and some important themes buried within those discussions that have broader implications. But first, we cover the spate of recent fintech acquisition activity. What's going on? Why? And why now? To quickly recap the news before I introduce our A6NZ expert, just this week, Intuit, maker of TurboTax and QuickBooks, announced its agreement to acquire Credit Karma, which has, quote, the largest engaged member base in consumer digital finance with more than 100 million people. And last week, Morgan Stanley announced an agreement to acquire online brokerage company E-Trade. And then last month, Visa announced its agreement to acquire Plaid, which enables connectivity between financial institutions and developers through APIs, making it easy for people to connect their bank accounts, et cetera, to the apps that they use to manage their financial lives. There have been a bunch of others as well, but I won't name them all here. So now let me welcome our A6NZ expert general partner in the fintech team, Anisha Charya, who, among other things, was most recently general manager of core product and general manager of U.S. card at Credit Karma. Anish, from your vantage point, why is all this happening? And I'm not interested about this only in terms of the financial aspects, because there's plenty of pundits out there to talk about that. I'm actually more curious from more of the standpoint of innovation, like what's happening? I mean, I think the best companies own distribution, not product. And if you look at these products that are relatively commoditized, you had a bunch of other companies that are out there competing with them. So even if you have a better mousetrap, it actually doesn't matter as much. These products are actually not that sophisticated. What is sophisticated and unique is the sort of reach that these products have. So Credit Karma with 100 million members, that distribution footprint is something that Intuit likely wanted. If you take a look at the relationship that E-Trade has with its customers in the context of wealth management or you know, stock trading to start, that's something that Morgan Stanley couldn't have easily replicated. And, and very much the same with Plaid and their developer distribution. So this is really a story about distribution and buying that, not product. When you talk about a product being a bit of a, quote, commodity... It can mean widely used. It can mean everyone else can do it. It can mean there are copycats. It can mean it can mean many things. So in this context, how should we think about this trend that we're trying to answer? Why is this happening? Why are these companies being acquired? Because otherwise one commodity is fungible with another. There are many examples of non-commodity advantages. It's just not reflected in the product at face value. If you take a look at Credit Karma, perhaps the squishiest one is simply the trust that they've built with their consumers. And how did that happen? Well, many consumers saw a promise of free scores and credit improvement. They achieved the outcome. And now they actually think of Credit Karma as the money button on their phone. And it's really hard to be the second money button on someone's phone. So that's a sort of squishy uh, and and very non-commodity asset that they have. And then in terms of other assets they have, if you just take a look at the number of downloads, the number of phones that they're on, you know, the average person downloads zero new apps a day, a week, a month. So having that footprint is a very defensible advantage. The other way to think about this is that financial services companies that have historically been transaction-oriented know that they need to shift to being truly relationship-oriented, and the definition of relationship has changed over time. So if you take a look at Intuit, for example, 
They own the point of transaction around filing your taxes, but they don't own a, own a durable relationship with a customer. You come to them for a specific purpose, which is filing your taxes once a year, and then when you're done with that, you're done with them. There is no ongoing conversation, and therefore there's no opportunity to re-engage and to offer adjacent services and products. And what they bought is an opportunity to have a much higher frequency engagement-oriented relationship with the customer. The same thing is very much true of a company like Morgan Stanley and Intrade. You know, wealth management is something that happens once, it's a set it and forget it, and they're realizing that that's not good enough anymore. Morgan Stanley bought E-Trade to get access to that portfolio of consumers with the idea that if people are buying and selling stocks, they may one day wish to buy wealth management services from Morgan Stanley. Mm -hmm. So that's for the folks that may be wealthy today and the mm -hmm. folks that are on their way to retirement. The other actual side of the E-Trade business is this little product called Solium and Shareworks, which they themselves acquired some time ago. And that actually helps companies with cap table management helps employees to manage the unvested and vested equity they have in these companies. The play there is, you know, what is pre-wealth management and how does Morgan Stanley get exposure to the sort of next generation of wealthy folks? So why now? Why all at once right now? Yeah, look, the argument I'd make is that if you look at the way that markets mature, they typically start with a technology innovation, and that's where engineers and engineering teams actually have the leverage. Then it moves to a product innovation because the technology is commoditized. Then it moves to marketing innovation, and then finally to sort of BD innovation. We're in that most mature phase of the market today. The why now is that these companies need to reach a new generation of consumers, yeah. and this generation of consumers is really engaging with fintech startups as their primary point of interaction with the financial services ecosystem. And for the first time, fintech startups are at the scale that they can actually represent a new growth curve for mm -hmm. incumbents. So one of the theses about the modern fintech customer is that there's no such thing as a single one app to rule them all. They're actually very bespoke. They'll have an app for this, they'll have an app for that, an app for this. So this idea that a company can have a whole portfolio of services, this idea like the old world of banking that you can kind of age in and demographically evolve, mm -hmm. is that currently still valid, do you think? I think the promise of fintechs is that they'll cross-sell and they'll be a money button on your phone, not a money folder. But the reality is that today it's more of a money folder. And until yeah. some company figures out how to make all of those products be better than the sum of their parts, they'll continue to be. Okay. So before we bottom line it, what are some takeaways for company builders? So there's a couple of takeaways here. So the first is that the best companies typically own distribution and product. But distribution is really where the leverage sits today. That's a really important takeaway. Having a great product is necessary, but no longer sufficient. And having great distribution is was always necessary, but at one point was not sufficient. The second is that where you actually get a competitive edge changes over time. And that's both macro in terms of how the market changes, as well as micro for how your company changes. Company builders should do the things that they always should do, which is focus on getting customers, putting the best product in front of those customers and making sure they have a durable relationship in business. I love that you said the word customers because a lot of people use that as like customer friendly, customer focused, but essentially from the entire theme of what you've said so far, it is the word at which the intersection of product and distribution comes together. Like That's it exactly lives right. inside the word customer. So bottom line it from you, Nish. These companies have historically been all thin and they know they need the tech. 
in the past, if you look at these companies, they've looked at technology as a cost center. It's IT, and now they realize that technology is actually a growth lever. Mm-hmm. So these companies are changing how they think about technology, and they know that they need to transform, and this is the best way for them to get there. Thank you for joining this segment. Thanks for having me. Okay, so in this next segment, we're going to cover the news. It's actually not recent news in the sense that the SEC filed a case against Telegram last year. In October 2019, they filed a complaint in federal court alleging that the company's sale of approximately 2.9 billion digital tokens, known as grams, were a violation of the Securities Act. What's more recent, however, and in the news, is that the courts have just started their hearings on this complaint, and the first one actually took place last week. And the case is particularly interesting given ongoing discussions of what is a security, not just the label, but the substance of what constitutes a security. And the crypto community as well has been watching because they were expecting it to be regulations in an emerging space. But really what the federal judge who first heard arguments last week, however, said, he emphasized that the court will not be rendering an opinion on cryptocurrency at large or a particular subset of cryptocurrencies, and that whether a cryptocurrency is inherently a security is, quote, not what this case is about. So that's a high-level summary of the news. And now let me introduce our A6NZ expert, Scott Cooper, who's been managing partner at Andreessen Horowitz and also wrote a book, Secrets of Sandhill Road, on how venture capital works and how to get it. Welcome, Scott. Thanks, Adam. So tell me why this case matters. Because if it's not just about crypto and what constitutes a security, why do we Yeah, care? so that's funny. That's why we thought it mattered. It turns out wrong because, as you said, the judge probably isn't going to resolve that issue. The the main issue it looks like it's going to turn on is this concept of what is an underwriter and when is a purchaser of a security deemed to be an underwriter. And what is an underwriter? Normally, an underwriter is somebody who actually is helping facilitate the sale of a security to somebody else. Mm -hmm. So the classic example is an IPO. I want to go public. I hire Goldman Sachs. They are an underwriter. Their job is to help me market it, to talk to institutional investors. And as a result of that, they have liability, and that all makes sense because they're serving you know, a particular role in right. the context of a sale of a security. But this is not an IPO, and this is not a case where there necessarily was technically an underwriter, at least as I understand it. That's so right. how is that becoming a question in this case? Yeah, so in this case, Telegram sold this you know thing that we don't know if it's a security or not. I'll use the term investment contract because I don't want to uh, uh, presuppose anything these days. Uh, but they sold a bunch of investors a piece of paper, and that paper said, someday we're going to have these things called grams, and when we do, your piece of paper is going to magically turn into these grams. And so despite the fact that there's grams and all these funny other things happening, that's the same thing that happens in the venture capital world. Venture capitalists and other private investors say, I want to own equity in company X, and we go out and we buy a company, we buy stock, and that's all done through a very, very well-settled mm-hmm. set of rules under a thing called Reg D, which says, hey, it's okay for that person to sell you these shares as long as you are a sophisticated buyer and you meet you know, yep. the various other requirements. So then what's at heart here? Because it sounds to me then, based on what the early hearings are saying, is this question of whether an investor can be an underwriter or not. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so what the SEC is saying here, and obviously we'll see what the judge decides, is that if you buy the investment contract for the Grams, that because you have a profit motivation ultimately at some point for Mm -hmm. them, that that makes you an underwriter. In other words, you bought it a year ago, you might want to now sell it a year from now. And effectively, we're going to collapse those two transactions and say, by the way, it turns out when you bought it, you were an underwriter, which therefore means you actually cannot sell it under the current kind of exemptions. Ah, that, that makes sense. Because right now when venture capitalists do this kind of thing, they are they have an exemption. That's right. It's under Rule 144, ah. which basically says if you buy private securities 
And generally, if you've held them for a certain period of time, then there's a clean way to resell them. You have to, of course, sell them in a way that's, you know, you can't be lying to people about it. You know, you can always be liable for fraud. But the mere fact of selling is actually permissible under Rule 144, and it's a pretty settled area of law. Then what is their concern then? I don't quite understand why if people want to sell something they bought, they shouldn't have the freedom to do it, especially if they are investors, not underwriters. The way I hear that and kind of understand it is that they're basically worried that the company is really using this mechanism as a way to raise capital, which typically would be done through these exemptions or other methods that are proscribed by them. And this is where the heart of that battle kind of could play out. Right. There's two battles, right? Which is is a gram a security? Right. If so, then we know the answer, which is you can't resell them or sell them, you know, unless they're either registered as securities or you have some rational exemption. exemption. Right. And unlike a normal security where you have information disclosure and you have the SEC's ability to kind of watch this thing, I think the SEC is saying, look, we don't know if we're going to win that or not. And, you know, it sounds like the judge is saying, look, I'm not even going to opine on that. And they're saying, well, the other way to kind of accomplish the same objective, which is to prevent these things from ending up in the hand of the unsuspecting public, is to say, hey, we're just going to deem you an underwriter and therefore your ability to resell it under Rule 144, we get the same outcome, which is these things don't end up in the shares of the public. Great. So then why do you care? I think one important thing to note about your vantage point here is that you are the former chairman of the industry group that advocates for venture capital industry, et cetera. And you've also testified in front of Congress and policymakers about various things that affect, you know, startup formation, capital flows. So that's an important context to have. So from that vantage point, why do you care? Especially because we're not investors in any of this. Yeah, we didn't invest in Telegram. Here's why I care about this opportunity. One is... This type of transaction happens day in and day out in the venture capital industry. So forget whether it's a gram or it's an investment contract or it's a Series A preferred stock. For 50 years, we've all had a very settled piece of law which says if you buy something privately and you follow these Rule 144 rules, you have the ability to sell that later on and you don't have to worry about underwriter liability or lack of resale market. Two is, just as a matter of principle, I just think this is a very important policy issue, and I don't think the right way to legislate policy issues necessarily is for the courts, but to actually Uh. have a reasoned discussion with the SEC, with Congress, with others, and say, hey, just recognize that there are big downstream implications that could come out of, you know, this type of decision. To me, then, the bigger picture is that if you think about the whole reason venture capital and these types of investments exist, investments, not underwriting, is because those early investors will often de-risk something for later investors. And so it's actually creating a limit on that behavior in the future if you can't actually sell something you invested in early on that you you took the risk on. Yeah. And look, the idea that you would sell something later is not a nefarious idea in and of itself. I think the implication here that the SEC is saying is, look, like there's something untoward about the fact that somebody bought something a year plus ago, and now that it is the thing they bought, that they shouldn't be able to trade it. And look, we can have that debate. There are deliberative bodies that are probably better at making those decisions than judicial fiat. So bottom line it for me, how should we think about the hearings that are going on? Which, by the way, I think the the judge said that he'll rule by end of April. So we'll find out. But um, given last week's discussions, What's your takeaway so far? So, so far, the takeaway is we are unlikely to get the answer to when is a security a security. So we will be able to continue that debate. But I think you got to pay very close attention to what happens here, less so for what it says about crypto generally and more so for what it says about the ability for the traditional private equity market to uh, continue to work the way it has worked. Everybody should be paying attention to this, not just obviously people here who sit on State Hill, because we know that, you know, venture capital and capital formation is incredibly important to jobs and economic growth and everything else that happens in this country. And so to 
to basically kind of say, look, let's introduce a lot of uncertainty into how these deals get done has potential downstream implications. Thank you for doing this segment, Cooper. Thank you, Sonal.